Up next on Inside the SCCA Portland Super Tour Preview. Welcome to Inside the SECA. I'm Brian Belansky, and uh, we've got special guests today that we're going to get to in just a second. One thing I would like to tell people is, I'm really excited, and Austin probably doesn't even know this, this is our 100th episode of Inside the SECA. Now, Austin Bradshaw is our guest. Let me bring him on the, on the split here with me. How you doing, Austin? Oh, I didn't unmute you. Hold on. There we go. How you doing? Good. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing real well. Before we get to Austin, usually every 50 episodes, I have um, the president of SCCA, Mike Cobb, as my guest. Um, But because the 100th episode is falling before the Portland Super Tour, I've asked Mike to graciously step aside so that we can have Austin here to talk about Portland. Now, in a week or two, we're going to have... Uh, we're going to have uh, Mike on the show and do the the our 50 episode update, our club update, and he has been really great to do us uh, do our show. This will be the third time he was on very early, one of our first couple of episodes way back in the day when we were just a a lonely little podcast with no video, and then he came on on the 50th episode and uh, he's agreed to come back with us here on episode 100. So I'm really excited about that. So. Uh, but with us today, we've got Austin Bradshaw. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm sorry I'm not as special as uh, as Mike, so I feel flattered to be here for the 100th episode and have been tuned in for a long time to Inside the SCCA. So uh, privileged to be here and look forward to highlighting um, the Portland Super Tour. I, I would I would suggest that you're, you're extra special because you bumped the big guy out of the chair on the 100th episode. So <laughs> uh, don't discount that. Don't discount that. So. So we're here to talk about Portland. Uh, we just got done with the Thunder Hill Super Tour. Uh, there was a lot that went on there, uh, from crazy weather to uh, uh, a special event with a Western Shootout and all that kind of stuff. Hopefully everybody watched the uh, the live streams. Uh, but we do this before every episode. We talk about the next, or before every Super Tour, we talk about what's coming up. So uh, we're going to get to that in a minute. But I'm going to start, Austin, with the question I start everybody. You know it's coming. What, uh, how, how did you get mixed up with this crazy sport that we love? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. Um, I've been surrounded by, I guess, sports car racing and and been involved with the SECA since I was old enough to remember. So, um, I grew up at the racetrack, helped my dad who's been racing, um, sports cars since the early nineties and his RX-7. So, um, and my grandfather raced motorcycles. And so our family's just been really ingrained into motorsports and racing for uh, as long as I can remember. I think I was at my first race at the uh, the ripe age of three months old for my dad's uh, SCCA Rose Cup race. So growing up, I just was always at the track and had the privilege to help my dad wrench and, and be out there rooting him on and, and getting to know so many great people in the SCCA community. So I guess I really didn't know anything else, um, but the the sport was never forced onto me. Um, just growing up, it's always been my biggest passion. And I played soccer and basketball and was a big football fan. And But racing has just always been the the thing for me. So um, it's just, it's grateful to have a family that's been so ingrained in the sport and to be able to have that. It's a luxury that some people don't have and everybody finds their way to, I guess, our crazy niche form of racing in different ways. And I guess I'm one of those people that, uh, has a family that kind of showed me the way growing up and, it, you know, essentially paved the path of what I wanted to do when I was finally old enough. So it took a long time to get to that level, um, to be old enough to finally have a license in a race car, I guess you could say. So I started in go-karts at um, 10. My my parents helped me get a go-kart early on just so I can get some track time. And uh, my mom obviously wanted me to stay safe, so I didn't do any go-kart <laughs> racing, but had a real go-kart, did uh, lots of track days and practice days in carts. And then when I was finally old enough, um, I was able to uh, get my race license um, at the age of 17. So it was just the most exciting day of my life, driving around the racetrack with my family on the wall, waving at me during my driver's school. So Certainly a super cool thing that I'll remember for a long time. So you're a track brat. Yes, I've yeah, I've every <laughs> every weekend that I can remember that uh, I have a choice to do something, I'm at the racetrack. So it's always been that way uh, growing up, and obviously in my in my teens and stuff like that, uh, helping my dad, and obviously now becoming friends with so many people um, at the track as well. So so what's your first memory 
of being at a racetrack? That's a great question. Um, I think I was six years old. Um, believe it or not, uh, I squished my finger in my dad's race car at the track. Um, so it was, uh, it was an SCCA weekend, Rose Cup. It was a, That's like the biggest uh, race up here in the Northwest that um, a bunch of racers have always participated at. And so, yeah, I went to the door wasn't shut all the way and go figure five or six year old Austin went over there to make sure it was shut and then got my uh, index finger squished in the door, uh, which required a trip to the emergency room stitches all while the race weekend was still going on. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was a, an eventful weekend to say the least, but that was, uh, my first real memory of being at the racetrack. And, um, I have so many great memories sitting in the grandstands watching, um, races back in the day up here in the Northwest. So, uh, but that'd probably be my first. So now you say you got into carts, but mom didn't want you to go racing carts. A lot of kids start racing when they're like eight, even, you know, in the mini carts yes. and all that kind of stuff. So when, when, when did mom finally give in? Because I'm sure you wanted to go right at age 10 and go at it. When did mom finally give in? Yeah, that's a great, uh, great point. Because my mom and or my dad and I kind of agree that we'll do go-karts and we'll keep them at practice days or keep me during practice days and away from tons of other people out there in a big group. And um, But my mom actually thinks that sports cars or cars are safer than a go-kart. With a go-kart, your head's you know, the sure. tallest thing and there was no roll cage around it and the carts flip over rather easily. So um, if, you know, you, you rub tires and stuff, so kind of like a formula car, it can go wrong quickly. But um, the cars, I guess, although you're going faster, have a lot more crush zone and roll cages and a containment seat and all these things that uh, my mom was a little bit more comfortable with watching my dad race over the years. So um, I guess that's was the, the the point where it was became more uh, OK. So, yeah, she did, she's not thrilled about me driving cars and still doesn't still doesn't love it. She's obviously nervous up in the grandstands, but she's one of my biggest supporters and is always out there watching, even if she doesn't uh, even if she doesn't want to see the close action out there. So, so did you never actually race carts? Did you just do kind of like track days, practice days, and your first actual wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing was in a sedan? Correct. Yeah. So from the age of pretty much 10 on up, I did practice days. I'd probably do between 6 to 12 practice days at my local go-kart tracks um, every summer. As much as we could get out there and as much as you know I could afford and my dad would help out as I went along, but a lot of the stuff I was able to pay for myself and um, which I, you know, feel the feel that's been a privilege for me to learn the value of a dollar as I've gone up through all forms of motorsport. So as much as I could afford to be out there, I did. And I you think as much as I didn't get wheel to wheel competition and racecraft, um, I spent tons of time really learning how to push a go-kart at its limit um, a lot through trial and error. And, you know, I didn't have the money for a driver coach. These days there's national kart racing groups and you got teams and driver coaches and data analysis. And I just kind of learned, as they say, through the seat of your pants and just learning how to drive the go-kart on the edge of what it was capable of. So I did that for six years um, and it taught me so much um, as far as the, the kart control, which translated into cars and it made the transition so much easier. And although kart racing is, you know, obviously prevents, presents a great opportunity to learn racecraft, the seat time itself um, did 90% of what I think I needed to learn um, during those six years. So I'm grateful that I had the chance to do that. Okay. So you said you paid for it yourself at age 10. What were you doing to earn money to go drive your, your go-kart? So I'll, I'll pass that back to my family. My, my dad and mom kind of helped get me the go-kart, I guess you could say, which is um, purchased from a friend of mine, an SCCA racer who lives just uh, 20 minutes down the road in a okay. local town. And so he, we both raced together to this day and our best friends. And he was about 10 years older than me and he was getting out of carts and he was getting into cars in SCCA at 16 and I was 10. So um, it just transitioned perfectly to where I bought his old go-kart and got started and so as I did a couple practice days um, when I was 10, 11, and then when I got to the age of 12, I obviously was still at the racetrack for my dad's race weekends, and I had such a passion for photography. So I'm a social guy. I roamed the pits with my mom's little old point-and-shoot camera that literally probably cost you $3 today if I tried to resell <laughs> it. Um, it's this little old, like, you know, Nikon cool pics or whatever, and I would go through the pits just taking pictures of cars that fascinated me and talk to drivers, and so... Kind of naturally, as I got older, um, it translated into, okay, well, as I turned 12, 13, like, can I start taking pictures and selling them? And so um, as that, it just continued to grow from there. And I became pretty much a local motorsports photographer and, and started taking pictures at 12 all the way um, to this day still when I have time. But 
Um, I've taken pictures at the runoffs countless numbers of times in the June sprints and, of course, local races and been credentialed for IndyCar and NASCAR and uh, World Challenge. So um, I've I've worked with and been friends with so many SCCA club racers through my photography business. And thanks to all of the generous drivers who paid for crit pictures, um, a lot of which were crappy when I first started out. I'm not going to lie. You know, you got to learn. But so, um, by so by supporting me, it helped. So was it like, you know, the kid with the lemonade stand who who isn't really making good lemonade, but you buy it anyway because you want to support the kid? Was that kind of what it was? Probably, yes. Getting started, looking back, sure. that's really what it was. And I'd print out pictures, you know, I'd like, I'd take them at one weekend, then bring them out to the track. And, you know, fortunately, thanks to my dad, you know, I grew up at the track and had lots of friends that I was easy for me to walk up to and say, hey, I took this picture of you last week. And it wasn't like I was trying to say I need $30 for this. But as time went on, they're kind of like, okay, well, you're getting better at it. And so I started to think, well, maybe I could actually take pictures and start selling them more regularly. And so it kind of really scaled and ramped quickly and I started buying my own camera equipment. And so the photography business was something I did from middle school all the way on up, which paid for my go-kart. And then obviously kind of helped me save up into getting into sports car racing. And that was pretty much my bread and butter to make money for racing um, from age 12 on. Um, so I'm privileged to have so many great friends in the SCCA that supported a local small photographer, small business, I guess you could say, um, to help get me on track. So really cool thing. So are you still taking pictures and selling them? Uh, when time allows, I have a number of, of jobs that I work for now. And photography is still a big part of my job as I do digital content management and web design and uh, marketing and blog writing. But photography is still a big part of it. But I'm not one of the photographers that goes out to every race weekend sure. and captures photos, kind of offering my, my digital packages or anything like that. So I wish I still had time to do that because it's something I truly am uh, passionate about and enjoy so much capturing a race car, you know, on the edge at its limit people in the paddock, the faces of SCCA, that stuff was so much fun for me. So I wish I had more time for that, but unfortunately I just don't. And most of the weekends now around here, I'm involved with either as a driver or helping people out. So um, it, it ran its course, I guess, to some extent, but if I have the opportunity to bring my camera out and take pictures, it's something I'm certainly still really passionate about doing. All right, so we've mentioned mom and dad a couple times. Tell us who mom and dad are. Uh, yeah. So my mom is, uh, Teresa and my dad is Danny. Um, and, uh, like I said, both of them have been such great influence on my life. Um, I guess grooming me into who I am today. And, you know, as much as, uh, I, you know, every parent wishes they could provide an opportunity for, you know, to pay for their kid to go racing. Our family just doesn't have the financial means to do that. And believe me, my parents would do anything they could for me. So I'm grateful for that. And a lot of it just comes through, you know, support um, emotionally and, and being in the garage, wrenching so many late nights in the shop with my dad. So um, I've pretty much a lot of the stuff since, you know, outside of my first go-kart, everything that I've purchased in racing, um, you know, 90% of it's been through my budget. And I'm so grateful for that. And my parents have helped guide me along the way of what to buy and how to save money, buy things used and all that stuff. So, um, but they're the best supporters I could ever ask for. So what does dad race? Dad races an RX-7 just like me. So the, uh, I guess for me, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And he started racing an RX-7 in the 90s in a class called RX-7 Challenge, which is um, kind of mimics that of Spec Miata today. And uh, there was 20 RX-7s around there making almost even more noise than the Miatas do these days. And <laughs> Um, as that class kind of faded away and Miatas grew in popularity, my dad started converting his car to e-production. Um, so that's kind of as I grew up in six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He was kind of in the conversion of that, and some of his other friends um, with their RX-7s started doing that as well, um, building e-production RX-7s. And I guess that's where my passion, similar to Jesse Prather, um, that's where my passion for produ production racing came from. So now, do you and your dad share an RX-7? Do you guys have two cars? We have two cars. So okay. he has his own red RX-7, his is a 79, and then mine is a 82 RX-7. Got it. And when you bought the your RX-7, was it a, a full-on race car, or did you buy an RX-7 and build a race car? So this is now the third rotary car I've now owned, race car that I've owned. The first one um, I was generously given from a good friend that was pretty much um, like, a, like a chump car, lucky dog car sort of thing that really was in need of a lot of fixing up. And so... Um, I was able to get that car and spent a lot of time and money with my dad in the garage, wrenching on it and fixed that up. And that's what I did my driver's school in. And I learned how to drive a slow car fast. I raced that car for two and a half years and it taught me more than I think I would ever have learned if I started with the car I have now. 
And so um, I then after that RX-7, I kind of realized, OK, I've learned a lot with this car. It served me well. And uh, then I purchased an e-production Mazda RX-2 um, from a local friend of mine that um, sold it to me for a good price. And uh, it was a huge step forward that was about, uh, I think, like six to seven seconds a lot faster than my original RX-7 that I got. So it took a step forward. I went from the back of the grid in uh, one year to pretty much the on pole the next year at similar races with 25 cars on the grid, which was a weird experience for me. But learning in the slow car, the slow RX-7 taught me so much that when I got into the RX-2, it became not easy, but the transition was so much simpler than had I started with the faster car. And then getting to my current RX-7, um, I purchased uh, this one about, um, I guess it was 2020, it was, so yeah, it'd be 2021. So spring of 2021 as I purchased that um, from another local racer, another car that I'd watched, all three cars I had watched growing up as a kid um, locally, and which is kind of cool to know that they are now, I guess, in my garage and uh, I have the privilege to own them and wrench on them. So, but yeah, that was another car locally. And um, it had been sitting for seven years. Um, it needed a bunch of TLC and a bunch of love, but the car had been built and it had all the basics there and um, had the wide body kit and everything. So then from there in 2021 of springtime, we had about a month and a half to get a different engine in it and clean up a bunch of stuff. And then I took it to the Super Tour that year in Portland um, in 2021. And on Sunday, somehow was able to win um, with the car's debut after seven years of it sitting, and um, which was kind of crazy. So since then, we've just been ticking away at developing it even more. Our guest today, Austin Bradshaw, uh, Portland area, Portland region. What's what's the region you belong to? Uh, Oregon region. Oregon region, uh, e-production driver. Yep. And uh, so was that last year's Super Tour you won? Uh, so last year's Super Tour, uh, it was 2021 was okay. the one that I was able to get a win at. So cool. that was the car's first year. And then last year we did the Super Tour also, and I got second both days in Portland last year, but um, was able to set a lap record um, that had stood for, I think, uh, 12 years um, that was set previously by a good friend of mine um, and my my dad's old racing buddy. Um, that yeah, so it had been around for 12 years. So to beat um, that time um, for my friend Bob Mulliken was a was a super exciting thing that I really didn't expect to be able to accomplish only a year and a half after I had purchased the car. So pretty cool thing. And like I said, it, uh, we didn't get the win that weekend, but I learned a lot and raced against a good friend of mine, Darren Dilley. And like I said, we've just been slowly kind of piecing it together. And, you know, my budget is obviously thin and, you know, there's, there's 20 things I could have done to the car when I bought it. And I did one thing kind of each race and um, probably halfway through the list of what I want to get to with the car. So we've made good progress. So when you finally stepped up from carts to your first driver's school, how, how quickly were you able to kind of get up to speed and feel like you were in um, first a safe place where you were at least not going to get in anybody's way or get in any trouble? And then when you really realized that, okay, I, I got a little something, I got a little talent here. Is, was that happening real quickly in that first school? No, I wouldn't say the talent was something that came quick. Um, my first day on track was something where it went super well, and I think I, I drove really smooth and consistent. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm somebody that's probably, um, I don't present a ton of confidence in things that I do in life. And But when I sat in the race car for the wait, first wait, wait, time hold a day, second, you know, Hold on a second. You, you, you present a ton of confidence. You, you started a photography business at age 12. You paid for your own karting. You then paid for your own first three race car. How old are you now? I am now 23. 23. Okay. So let's erase this. I don't present a lot of confidence. Okay. Let's get that out of the mindset. Okay. Um, but anyway, let's go back to maybe, maybe when you did your first school, yeah. you didn't present a lot of confidence. When I did my first, when I did my first school, you know, growing up in sports and stuff, I wasn't somebody that was the most confident right. player and, and I believed in myself, but I was never someone that touted myself as the best and sure. getting into cars. I wasn't, I definitely didn't believe that. And, but for my first day on track, I was just like, so overjoyed to be driving a race car. You know, my parents were like, are you nervous? And I said, no, I've been waiting my whole life for this. And for the first time there was something new that I was doing in life that I wasn't nervous about. When I started the photography business, I was nervous about it. When I, you know, purchased race cars or went to basketball practices and all that stuff, it, I was nervous about those things. But to get in the race car for the first time came easy, which I'm fortunate to say. And that's just because I grew up at the track. I was comfortable. It was, it's my home out there. So but the skill, I think, definitely was not something that developed quickly. And um, it took that first year and a half worth of driving. And um, the thing I'll credit most to my development as a driver would will go back to sim racing. And I was not an avid iRacer or a set of course a driver. I had a, I had a $200 Xbox that 
uh, was super cheap and a Logitech steering wheel that was the baseline. And it was like all in $400. And I drove on that from the age of 15 all the way to, to this day still. And it taught me so much because sporting a race weekend at the age of 17 was, you know, it's a 500, $600, $1,000 gig. And sure. I didn't have the luxury to do that. So I would do a couple weekends a year from 17 to age 19. So it was about two and a half years of driving that first car. And, you know, I took everything I could learn on the sim and translated into the car. And uh, so I guess steadily after during that those course of those two years, I got quicker and quicker and um, then finally realized, OK, I think I'm ready to step up to the faster to a faster car and was able to track down the the Mazda RX-2 that I purchased and, and still own from my friend um, in uh, out in Canby. So it was a privilege to purchase that car. But, yeah, the learning really stemmed from being on in the sim and analyzing my video and watching other drivers videos because I just didn't have some guys that get it started in racing and they can do 12 weekends a year. And what I did in two and a half years, they could do in eight months. Right. And I didn't have that luxury and that's totally okay. And so I leaned on the sim racing um, to teach and develop me as a driver. Sure. Sure. So what's the goal this year for Austin? Uh, the goal for this year um, to continue developing the car. I think one of the beautiful things about e-production is it's a class that you're so many different makes and models from BMW Z3s to E36s to Datsun Zs, which are so cool and um, so much in between. Of course, Miatas, RX-7s, and S2000s. And you know, I love spec racing. I haven't been a part of it per se, but the the production classes, you know, offer so much room for creativity and not necessarily in the rules, but I just mean in how you develop a car, what model you choose and um, so moving forward, I guess I've found such a passion for developing the car and finding new ways to get speed out of a car that has been nationally competitive for a long time. But you have some of these newer models like these BMWs that are tough to compete with. They make more horsepower in most cases. They handle better. They have shorter wheelbases. They don't have a roof. Um, and, and some of them do. But even so, like even the S2000s and the Miatas, it's just it's hard to compete, but I've found such a joy in finding ways, new ways to make a first-gen RX-7, try and be competitive against some of these cars. So through this year, I hope to do the Portland Super Tour, and then we'll do the Seattle Majors, and then um, hopefully, if all goes well, we'll make it to the, the runoffs at VIR um, if I can uh, if I can afford the, the budget to get there. So one more question before we start talking about this weekend's race. I, I was flipping around your website, and I see a picture of your dad, and then I see a picture of you. And I see another person in carts. Who is that? That would be uh, that'd be my younger brother Alex. So he is uh, he's now just getting into the uh, to this thirteen age range. He'll be uh, turning thirteen. Um, actually, sorry, no, he'll be turning fourteen this year. And right. uh, so technically, next year he could be in a race car, but mom will probably not allow that. So he is coming up in the ranks and is just as tall as me. So if you ask him this weekend in the paddock, he would tell you that he could drive the race car because he's tall <laughs> enough. Because um, I'm like the shortest guy you'll ever meet. So, uh, but he's really excited um, and and a great great help at the track. So, so you didn't soften up mom to pave the way to let him go kart racing. Uh, no, I'm afraid not. He's got uh. lots of practice days in and, and lots of indoor go-kart training and sim driving. He's far, far um, further ahead than I was at this age. So, um, and, you know, he'll tell you that he's leaned on me and, and, you know, I've, I try and teach him as much as I can, but not forcing it on him. I, you know, it's so many kids these days and go-karts get forced into, Hey, we got to go racing. We got to be out the track. And for him, it's, he wants to do it and he has a passion to do it just like I did. So, when we have the opportunity to drive carts together, we do, and it's uh, it's a ton of fun to be out there with him. So in a couple of years, we'll be on track together in, in sports cars, and I'll probably be faster than him at first, and then it won't take too long before we'll probably be equal. So um, it'll be really great fun for hopefully many years to come to race with him in cars. I know he's excited about it. Mom sounds like she's a tough cookie. She's she's a super, super generous, sweet lady. She's just very, wants to be safe, and she really cares about <laughs> Cares about her babies, which is uh, totally understandable. She's a great mom, and I, if I was in her case, I understand where she's coming from. So, we try our best to not push the limits too far, though. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being mama bear. No, no, no problem with that yeah. at all. All right, so exactly. Let's get to Super Tour this weekend, Portland. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I've never been there, and actually, uh, Greg is going to be at Portland this weekend. I will be. Uh, I will be at the home studio. So uh, you'll get a chance to maybe run into him this weekend. He's been there before. I have not. So what is what, what am I going to see when I jump on the broadcast Saturday morning? What, what does Portland have that we should be talking about? Hear that? 
Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. What am I going to see when I jump on the broadcast Saturday morning? What what does Portland have that we should be talking about? Yeah, Portland is a, a beautiful little track. It, it is the uh, it's a city park, believe it or not. It is it is uh, managed. It's not privately owned. It's completely controlled by the city, um, which is a really neat thing that it's a actual city park, um, and, and it's filled with luscious green, you know, trees, grass. It's not what you see, obviously, down in California. Um, which is uh, certainly a lot different than, you know, up here in the Northwest, which we just have uh, such beautiful backgrounds. And um, But Portland is a, is a super fun little track. It's not something that people are have on their bucket list, typically. It's, it's definitely not a road America. But when you get to Portland, um, it presents itself as a little flat, a little simple. But it's a track that's easy to get up to speed with, but a track that's rather technical to be really fast at. Um, but the track doesn't have super long straightaways. And so you really get into a consistent rhythm of constantly doing something in Portland. Um, and I, I super, I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. It is very rhythmic. Um, it's got a super great flow to it for, I guess, the two miles that it is. Um, but it presents itself to really great racing. The chicane, where they call it the festival turns or the Shelton chicane is what it's now deemed. Um, is It makes a super tricky complex to get through and presents a great passing zone at the start of the race. So Oftentimes there can be carnage there. So fingers crossed for my group and most every other group that they get through there clean. But if you've watched IndyCar and NASCAR there, it can be the center of attention um, as far as a, a, a deal breaker to get through. Um, both fast on your own and going through um, with 30 other cars to start a race can be a little bit challenging as it funnels down pretty tight into, into turn one. And then from turn one, you go into the short little shoot into uh, a, a, it's like a dual apex right-hander, right? Yes, turn four. Yep. Tell us a little bit about getting through that area. Yeah, it's an interesting corner. And, you know, if you're in a spec Miata, you can really hug that super tight. Um, I've had the chance to drive one thanks to my good friend Dan um, Toomey that let me drive his. But it's so much different in my car. I just car consider my car not to be the best handling. And you end up missing that first apex and really aiming for the second one. There's kind of two sets of curves there at four. Um, if you're, if the car handles really good, like a formula car or a spec Miata, you can hug that, you can hit both and stay down to the bottom and take the shortest distance. If you're in a stock car or anything kind of like prod car faster, e-prod faster, you'll probably want to miss that first apex to straighten out the second one. But the key there is just rolling as much speed in as possible. That was probably the most comfortable se section of the track transitioning from go-karts to cars for me, because there isn't a lot of shifting there. It's like driving a go-kart right on the edge or on its limit. So, um, it's a very part of the track that lends itself to a driver that can really hang the car right on that ragged edge without going too far. Um, it's a super fun little delicate dance through there that I really enjoy. And then there's a section of corners before you get on to that kind of back straight area, which isn't really straight, but it is kind of straight. Yes. Um, let's talk about the section that you need to get through to get onto um, what it what looks like. It's, it's like a hundred and what is that? 130 degree right-hander to get onto that back straight. So let's talk about the corners before you get to that hard right-hander, because I, I assume that hard right-hander is really important, or is it just a throwaway because yes. it's so tight? It is really important. Um, leading up to that, like you said, going through five and six is really important. I wouldn't say there's gobs of time to be made up there, but coming out of six, the more you can get on throttle early, roll your speed in as much as possible and get back to throttle early, driving the car out all the way to driver's right. It's really easy to drop a tire in the grass right there if you're really pushing. Um, and you'll see the Spec Miata guys do that constantly. Um, but getting out of six is super important because there is that little short stretch there. And the more you can keep your minimum speed up, the better. Six is a tricky corner. No matter what car you're in, nobody really likes turn six in Portland. It's like a, if you're riding in a race car there, you feel like you're falling out of the car. It, it just The whole car is just leaning so far over to the right. So no car or setup really gets through six super well. But it is a super important corner. And leading into seven, if you drive the car out of six all the way to driver's right, 
and you leave the steering wheel, um, I guess in your case, you'd be opposite of me where I'm facing you, but you leave that steering wheel in that same position as you track out of six, it will naturally take the car all the way over to driver's left to inner seven, um, which is again, like you said, a super important corner um, as all the straightaway speed that you get um, comes out of the exit of seven. So this is the slowest corner on the track with minus, you know, turn one, the chicane. Um, and it's tricky to get through there. It's so wide on the entry, but it narrows up really quickly on exit. So drivers have a tendency to really drive it in hard, and then they end up having to modulate throttle or get off gas because they're running out of road on the exit. So um, the sooner you can kind of get on the brakes hard, get the nose completely planted, and get the car all the way down to the apex at seven and have one good clean throttle application on exit, driving the car all the way out to the curbs on driver's left um, will really aid in lap time. I mean, you might lose a mile or two at entry as far as your minimum speed in, but if you're full throttle at the apex and exit, you're going to make that back up in three or four miles an hour down the end of the back straight, which is super crucial. So seven is a make or break lap as far as if you're qualifying and you're on a hot lap to put down a flyer. If you don't get out of seven and you miss the apex or you get a, you got to modulate the throttle at the at the exit, um, the lap is pretty much hosed. And you might as well lift going down the back straight and wait for, for the next opportunity. So it's a super crucial one. All right. So the back straight is is not straight it's got kind of a, a right hand bend to it and then there's a little left right thing at the end how deep into that can you go flat on the gas before you have to start worried about that that right hand sweeper to get onto the main straight yeah so as you go through all the way down the back straight away you know it slowly curves and as you enter what's called turn 10 um it's a fun little sequence i accumulate this not to the kink at road america um or i don't know what turn it is i think it's maybe 10 at sonoma but this is a high commitment corner and the more comfortable you get through there, the faster you can be because um, it's really a quick settle the hard at modulation of the brakes, throw the car to the left. And as soon as you can get back to the throttle between 10 and 11, um, the faster your lap time is going to be. So a lot of it's you can you don't want to overslow the car coming into 10 because then you, if you're on full throttle through 11, then is you're probably going too slow through 10. So it's a it's a balance of rolling the speed in, but yet keeping the car settled um, to really focus on getting the car completely right where you want it for 12 as you enter 12 so you can get a super good smooth clean throttle application on exit to go down to the front straight again so 10 and 11 12 is a, a make or break place on the track also especially for new drivers it takes time to get comfortable there and really trust that the car is going to stick as you throw the car one way and then back the other way before you have to get on the brakes in 12. all right so you said it's a high commitment corner um yep the kink at road america that's my home track is a high commitment corner um, it took yes. me uh, an embarrassingly long time, I won't say how long, to realize, <laughs> well, I, I knew I could do it flat out because everybody does. But for me to believe yeah, yeah. the car could go flat out, how long did it take right, you right. To, to get to the point where you, you knew that your car could do what it needed to do and that you could make that commitment every lap? Yeah, and I just think it takes repetitions. You can't tell somebody out there to just fly through there. And like you said, it, it just takes time, just like the kink does. And I think the Road America, I haven't driven Road America. It's, it's on the top of my bucket list. But I think the kink there presents another challenge in that it's blind. Where And there's you know a wall meeting you, where in this case, when you flick it to the left, you have a lot of runoff room if you goof this up. So it's probably easier to get comfortable through 10. Um, but it's definitely a, a part of the track that takes, takes practice and takes um, just repetitions of going through there each lap. Okay, I can roll in a little more, a little more, a little more, and feeling the grip still there, still there. And then eventually you'll find, okay, I can't go that deep. And you either miss the turn in at 10 and you go off in the grass. And unfortunately, I haven't ever had a big off there, but I know people that do. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely just one of those things that takes repetitions and, and trust. It's trust in the car. And for new drivers in Portland, if you if you're getting up to speed with driving in general, um, that definitely takes some time. So the fast guys in Spec Miata or Spec Race Support or any class for that matter are really hauling the mail through 10 and they're eating all the curb on the left, throwing up grass. If the noodles aren't there, they have little FIA noodles and stuff to keep people off of the grass. But um, it's a super fun sequence. And when you get it right, you can, you know that you got it right. So it's a, it's a very rewarding section of the track. Definitely. Definitely. So, so let's talk car setup for a little bit. Does, does Portland, um, does Portland uh, show it if you have a high horsepower car or does Portland show it show your speed when you have your car set up well? What what where is the the balance of high horsepower versus versus proper setup? Yeah, I think that's that's a great point there, Brian. And I I think I actually tend to to view this track a little bit like Road America. Road America definitely has longer straightaways than Portland, but there's car there's cars that can get around 
Road America that don't have the top end that can still make a lot of lap time if, say, their car gets through the carousel super, super well, or say their car navigates down, you know, through the valley there and everything. If it, Portland is similar in that way, and that my car, believe it or not, is rather probably more of a higher horsepower car um, and consideration to a GTL car. Me and my good friend Scott Toomey, we race each other all the time. Um, I think I have like another 80 horsepower in his car, and yet his car, he'll swallow me up in the corners through turns, you know, four, five, six, and seven. Um, even if I'm eight car lengths ahead of him entering turn four, he will make up almost all of that between four and seven which is pretty impressive. So if you're in a car that handles really good or it lends itself to, you know, super obviously quick implements and, and uh, it's just super compatible, then four, five, six, and seven is where the car is going to be really strong. And then you'll find out that the straightaway speed will benefit a car with more power down the straight. And then as you go through 10, 11, 12, then the quick, lighter, nimbler car will gain a lot of that back. So even if you're down horsepower, if Portland still lends itself to being competitive um, with a car that maybe doesn't have that top end, but can still navigate the corners quickly if the driver's up to it. Yeah, by looking at the map, Portland has, does it looks like it has, you know, from turn one through turn seven is really kind of technical and tight. Whereas at Road America, yes. you know, there's not a whole lot technical at Road America. It's basically 90 degree turns, a couple of big sweepers, yes. and then mash it on the gas. You know, and yes, exactly. um, whereas here it looks like this is kind of a, a more of a balance between, um, you know, I, I would call Road America flat out horsepower track and um, and you can learn Road America pretty quickly. Um, and even the carousel, it's horsepower with with a little bit of of handling because yeah. you're trying to set yourself up to go onto that back straight. Uh, so I, I look at the Portland track map and say, OK. You've got a really technical section and a section that kind of mimics um, the the longer straightaway type situation at Road America. So it, it, I don't think it benefits one over the other quite as much, right? Yes, I would agree with that. I think Portland would be very similar to that of a Mid-Ohio. If sure. it, there's another comparison really close to that would be Mid-Ohio. A car that does good at Portland will probably do well at Mid-Ohio just because there is so much twisty technicality to it. Um, and it's just so funny because I've had so many great races with cars that we make lap times so much differently as in one's faster down the straight and one's faster in the corners. And yet we'll be running identical lap times. And yet we'll be half of the lap will be completely, you know, 10 car lengths apart. And then the other half of the lap will be glued to each other. And it's kind of this reverse thing. So um, for those that are racing against each other with either varying horsepower or, or you know, different class racing, um, it still provides a great opportunity for for great passing. Turn seven's a great passing zone you'll see on the broadcast this weekend. And of course, the chicane. Um, into turn one. So two really hard brake zones to get the car down and lots of time to get to the inside of someone without having to do the old, is he there, is he not there? So um, it should should lend itself to some good racing this weekend for those watching online. All right. So uh, before we finish this up here, um, you have some fans in the chat. I got to tell you, 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 you got some people. Uh, Dennis Marshall in the chat. Uh, <laughs> he says, TLC love equals dollar signs. I like that. Um, what else is there here? Um, uh, Elijah Dobkins is here. Dave Tooney is here. Um, got a bunch of folks here. Thank you all for being here. Uh, Eric Jones. Nice job, Austin. So, uh, yeah, cool. Got fans in the chat. Love it. Love it. Um, yes, lots of great racing friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we're getting to that point now where I have to ask you some of the more important questions. Okay. We've talked yeah. about that. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, part of a race weekend is, you know, what you do when you're not at the racetrack and, uh, you know, where you hang out with your friends. Um, oh, before we get to that, is there any elevation change in Portland or is it pretty flat? It is very flat. If you walk the track, you'll notice there's more elevation than what meets the eye. If you're just looking at it from a map, but, um, if you're down there, you'll notice a little bit, but compared to most racetracks, it's almost flat as a board. <laughs> Absolutely. Cause it's right next to the airport, right? Yes, right next to the airport. And, and the track itself was actually, um, it used to be the city of Vanport that flooded. So it was a small um, post-war town that a bunch of families moved to. And then a big flood came in. And um, obviously the city kind of got washed away. Everybody fled. And what was left was a bunch of roads that people brought their race cars to. So um, it's obviously doesn't have to worry about flooding too much anymore. But um, the actual track itself is based on um, old uh, city roads, believe it or not, that then has slowly over time transitioned into being a full racetrack um, year round. Absolutely. So, all right, now, now to the important questions. Um, where, where, yes. do, where do we go to eat when we're, when, when the racing's over on Friday and Saturday night, where, what, what's, where are the hotspots? 
That is a great question, Brian. One of my favorite things to do racing. We're all there to have a great time and hang out with our buddies. Um, you know, we all want to go as fast as we can and everybody loves trophies and winning. But um, at the end of the day, we're all doing this as a hobby and we spend way too much doing it. So hanging out with your friends and your family after the day's over um, is one of my favorite things to do. And that's really why I go racing. So we love going to Kenton Station. Uh, I got to shout out my good friend, James. Um, it's literally right um, right next to the track. It's about a three minute drive away. Um, it's a little pub and grill and bar. Um, great food. Um, and James is a huge supporter of the racetrack over there in the little small neighborhood of Kenton Station. So, um, but it, the place is great. So if you're not in the, if you haven't, not from the area, definitely go to that place. Um, super near to the tracks. So you're not going to drive anywhere super far away. Um, so I definitely would recommend going there. Um, there's a lot of great places. Obviously, it's within a 10 minute drive of downtown Portland. So um, if you're interested in venturing into downtown to see some, um, you know, cool different restaurants and places, there's a bunch of neat stuff down there. There's also kind of some great restaurants down on the Vancouver waterfront, just into the Washington state there about 10 minutes away. Also, I'm a big fan, big fan of Husong and Larry's. It's a great Mexican restaurant um, right on the water. You can watch the airplanes take off and land. Oh, cool. um, and then there's also a McMinimins right there on the water too. So lots of great eateries um, near the racetrack, which is an awesome thing for out of towners. All right, none of those none of those places are sponsors of the inside of the the uh, SECA podcast. But if you'd like to be, uh, it's race announcer Brian at gmail.com. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, uh, what else do we need to know? Is there anything else that we should be talking about before we head up there for the weekend? About- uh, you know, to be honest, that I I just know that there's going to be some great racing. Um, you know, it's not it's not going to present itself to be a June sprints entry list, but I think there's 150 cars slated for the weekend and um i know there's going to be a, a good variety of cars racing i know the t4 class is going to be awesome i know that mark cephalo drove all the way across the country for this um, but there's a bunch of super fast local friends uh rolled on colin um rick uh derek ambrose if he ends up driving um so that's going to be a real barn burner in t4 i think there's 10 cars scotty b white's going to be out there of course so um, it's anybody's guess of who's going to win that class. I, Oscar Jackson, super fast in his RX-8, so go Rotaries. Um, so I'm going to be watching that race for sure. The T3 race looks like it's got a great field. Um, Chris Hart's got a new 350Z. So, um, And the prototypes, um, I think Aaron Bailey and Chip Romer and Jim Devonport are all going to be battling in P1. So that'll be another super good battle um, in the prototype ranks. And um, in my group, we got four cars for the e-production class. Uh, me, uh, Kurt Fritschke, good friend from California. Um, and then my good friend, Adam, who has a Porsche 944. And then I think Albert, um, who I don't know, coming up with a Boxster from, from California also. So I think there's going to be a, a good variety of racing in, in every group to watch this weekend. And there should be some close battles, um, even if it's not the biggest weekend. I know you spectated and, and you know announced a lot of super tours, but there should be some good racing um, amongst the groups this weekend. So I got to tell you, if it rains, and I'm looking at the forecast, that's another thing we're going to talk about here in just a second. If it were to rain, you'd have yeah. to watch out for Albert and that Boxster because he was hooked up at Thunder Hill yes. in the rain. Um, he, was, he was dialed in. Yes. That is totally for sure, Brian. It was impressive to see how what he did in uh, Thunder Hill. That was amazing. Okay, so um, I I just want to go to Thunder Hill or uh, to Portland this weekend with a big truck full to, full of Gatorade because uh, ninety <laughs> degree ninety two degrees on Saturday, ninety degrees on Sunday. We've been in Atlanta, Sebring. Austin, Buttonwillow, um, all of the places where you would expect to get 92-degree weather, and it's been cold and damp in many of these places. Um, but we got to go to Portland to get 92? What's going on? I, I You're telling me, Brian. I, I was, you know, <laughs> you think the Super Tour in Thunder Hill would lend itself to good weather, but you guys really got a, a treat, I guess you could say. That was some miserable conditions all weekend. So, um, But, yeah, I, crazy enough, Portland – of all places, would uh, end up hitting the 90s in May. So I guess last year there was a lot of precipitation in the springtime. So I guess I'll take the sun and the hot um, versus the the rain showery systems that sometimes come through in the springtime. So should lend itself to some great racing, though. Um, so I'm super excited about the sunny weather here in Portland. Is John your dad? Uh, no, my dad is Danny. Uh, my Who- grandpa is John Bradshaw. Okay, so John recommends Stanton Station, by the way. Oh, okay, Uncle John. Now you're talking oh, to Uncle John. Uncle John, yes. okay. Kenton Station. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, sorry, we have too many Johns, but Uncle John recommends Kenton Station, yes. Got it, got it. Um, What else is there? Oh, and uh, uh, Dave Twomey says, great job being an ambassador for the Pacific Northwest Austin, perfect spokesperson. I have, to, I can't agree more, by the way. 
And uh, with all of you rattling off all the names of who's going to be there this weekend, I'm going to have I may have to get a new job because I think next time you're going to be the host of the Inside the SCCA podcast. Uh, fantastic, my friend. That was awesome. Um, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Um, do me a favor before we get out. T- talk to me. T- uh, say hi to your sponsors. Thank them all for it. Yeah, I mean, there's so many people I could thank. Um, outside, going back through my history of racing, I'm not going to name everybody, but if you've impacted and helped me in some way, shape, or form, um, I can't thank you enough from giving me parts or, or giving me deals on parts um, and helping me, support me in so many ways. All of my photography customers and friends over the years that have supported my my business, and um, it means a lot. So um, if you, you you know who you are, if you've lended uh, your time or consultation or or service to me at some point over the years, um, you know, just having friends like, like so many in the SCCA is such a gratifying thing. And before I get to the sponsors, Brian, I just want to say that if there's anybody else that's young out there getting started in racing, SCCA racers love new racers. So if you're somebody that's considering getting into sports car racing and you don't know what to do and you don't know what class and you don't know about the club, all the drivers are happy to answer questions at the track or send us an email or send somebody a Facebook message because we as drivers want to grow racing. Um, that's you know that's what's important to us. At the end of the day, none of us are F1, IndyCar, NASCAR, IMSA champions. We're just out there to have a good time with our friends. So the more people we can get out to the racetrack, the better. Um, but the SCCA community has supported and helped me in ways that I would have never imagined at the age of you know 10 growing up, um, getting into my first race car, thanks to my good friend Bill Burnham. And so many other people that have helped and aided me along the way, which means so much. So, uh, but uh, quickly, I'll go through the sponsors. I got to thank Sunoco Race Fuel up here um, over to my right. I'm super excited to have them on board supporting me this season. Um, Haggerty, um, obviously, they offer so many great insurance offerings for your trailer, race car, all your gear and everything. So definitely consider them. Um, thanks to uh, Valvoline. They've been using, they've been used in my family's race cars since the 90s. So they're the best uh, best oils you can get for your engine transmission and diff. Um, I got to thank PDX Garages, uh, have Cobalt Racing Brakes, make the best, uh, obviously, brake pads around. Um, AR Motorsports is a local great shop that uh, I'm privileged to work for and they support me. Um, Future Apparel, um, who else here? Uh, Renowned steering wheels, yeah, they're awesome, cool, motorsport-focused steering wheels. So, um, so many people to thank um, throughout the years. Uh, you know, of course, uh, Mazda Motorsports is awesome, and Goodyear is fantastic as well. So, um, just so many people that have have supported me along the way that give me the chance to go racing. Um, and, and specifically, I got to shout out my family um, from my dad Danny to Joe to John um, to my uh, you know not uncle John Josephson, who's also my engine builder that we get to build engines together. It's such a privilege. So. Um, there's so many people from my grandparents to my girlfriend, Mary, to my siblings and my videographer, Ashley, who's my sister. Um, she does such a great job capturing all of our efforts throughout the year. Um, and my little brother, Alec, who has been such a great help, um, throughout, throughout my racing time. Can't wait to go on track with him. So, um, the list goes on and on, but, um, you know who you are if you didn't get mentioned in this list. So I'm just uh, privileged to have so many great people surrounding me that, uh, even if they're not, obviously, they can't provide monetary support. They're out there wrenching with me. They're out there wrenching the garage late nights. And and specifically, my dad, um, I've learned everything that I know to this day, thanks to him. So it's been such a great joy to um, grow up in, you know, his, I guess, footsteps, learning how to, how to wrench and how to race. So um, wouldn't want it any other way. You forgot Mama, Mama Bear Teresa. Yes. Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> we talked about Mom. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> Uh, she is is my late night uh, talker. She'll listen to me babble about things she doesn't really probably want to listen to about cars, but um, she's such a great supporter and role model for me in life. So um, everybody comes out to track every weekend. It's, we look like a circus wearing our matching shirts through the racetrack every weekend, but um, they're the best people I could ever ask for and wouldn't want any other family. So um, I'm just grateful to have them surrounding me. So, so you said just something before we get out, you said something about how Everybody at the SCCA is it loves to have young people come up. I thought we were a bunch of old stodgy people who who didn't want kids on our on our in our paddock with us. Is that wrong? Then I would say that that's the the stereotype. But I'm hopeful <laughs> that I will will change that as time goes on. So there's so many so many avenues to get involved with sports and and automotive stuff these days. But the SCCA is a great place to take your car, whether it's track night in America or doing time trials or rally cross or obviously getting on track in sports cars um if you love doing if you love racing and driving or cars in general um you'll love getting on track for the first time if you haven't done that before so um the scca is just a, such a great place to spend time with friends and family and that's what it's all about with cars at the same time 
I, I say that with purposeful, sarc- purposeful sarcasm because I've had uh, Lauren Brellier, you, Austin, uh, 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 Bailey Monette, uh, all these kids, yeah. in my mind, kids who've come on, who've said exactly the same thing as you. We hear about how, you know, the yes. graying of the SEC. And sure, yeah, we're, there's a lot of us old guys around. Uh, but I, we, the young folks breathe such a life and enthusiasm that keep us working harder. And I love that. So I hope that is the experience that everyone who is young has uh, when they come to to play with us. So uh, Austin Bradshaw, thank you so much. Uh, you, you you could not have been a better choice uh, to come on here and talk to us about Portland, your enthusiasm and your passion and uh, and and everything you've brought today has been just fantastic. I look forward to calling your races this weekend and uh I'm not allowed to outwardly root for anybody because, you know, I'm the broadcaster and all. But uh, uh, but I will uh, we'll, we'll have our eye on you this weekend and, and good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a privilege to be on the show and having listened to so many of the other people you listed off that have been on the show previously. So many so many of my great idols like Jesse Prather and uh, Jim Devonport that I've grown up watching over the years. And obviously some of my young counterparts like Bailey and Lauren. So. Um, it's it's a privilege and so many of like you said there might be some older people but those are the wise people that have passed down the knowledge onto these younger kids so um, hopefully the young foundation is growing and we can get more young people out of the track to keep uh, seca and just racing at the club level um you know growing for years to come so thank you for having me and uh, i look forward to uh, obviously hopefully we put on a good show for everyone watching and for you um commentating from home brian all right that's going to do it for this week's episode of inside the seca if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the Racing Wire Podcast Network and the Racing Network on YouTube so you won't miss an episode. It would also be great if you leave a comment, especially if it's a good one. I don't know why you wouldn't have a good one after this episode. You can follow us on social media to find out who our next guest is and leave a question on Twitter. It's at RacingWireNet. There's a new Inside the SCCA every Wednesday night live on Twitter and then on Fridays on the Podcast Network. I'm Brian Belansky. Have a fantastic weekend. Stay safe and go play with cars. Hi, I'm Kelton Jago, and this is Inside the SCCA. Inside the SCCA is a presentation of the Racing Wire Podcast Network and Rural 15 Productions. This podcast is not affiliated with, endorsed, or sponsored by the Sports Car Club of America. The views expressed within are those of the host and our guests, and not that of the SCCA.